Behind every famous fictional character is the person or family that created it. In this episode, we return to the world of Winnie the Pooh. Only now, it's not to talk about the lovable bear, but to explore the lives of the family responsible for bringing him to the world. Hey everyone, Christine here to talk to you about A.A. Milne, his wife Daphne, and their son, Christopher. When I covered the history of Pooh and his friends back in January, I posed the question, who is your favorite character? Well, alongside those answers, the vast majority of which were Eeyore, by the way, I received questions about the Milnes. This made me realize that many of you wanted to hear about the people behind Pooh as much as you did about Pooh himself. Then, because I think the family has an absolutely fascinating story, I decided to make it two parts. I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoyed researching them. And as always, my thanks to our patrons and a reminder that if you are looking for a captioned version of this episode, and indeed actually all of our episodes, you can find it at footnotinghistory.com or youtube.com slash footnotinghistory. But for now, on to the Milnes. I want to start by tipping my hat to three people. A.A. Milne, his son Christopher, and biographer Anne Thwaite. Both Milnes left behind wonderful autobiographies slash memoirs that allowed me to read their thoughts and look at the way they decided to present their story to the world. Anne Thwaite wrote the one biography of Alan Milne that was given the green light by Christopher. According to her introduction, he told her to write it as if he was not going to read it, which certainly freed her up in terms of what she felt she could say in its pages. Although I consulted a number of excellent sources for these episodes, without the words of the Milnes and Anne Thwaite's in-depth biography, I doubt they would be half as good. So please do check those out after you listen here, of course. Alan Alexander Milne, known to readers as A.A., was born in London on January 18, 1882. He was the third son of John and Sarah Maria Milne, born after Barry, who he didn't much like, and Ken, who he liked a great deal. Both of Alan's parents had backgrounds in education. Prior to marrying Alan's father, his mother taught as a girls' school and his father was a lifelong educator. In fact, Alan's earliest school years were at his father's school, where he had the interesting luck of being taught by none other than H.G. Wells. Yes, the Wells of the Invisible Man and Time Machine fame. Alan eventually moved on to Westminster School to complete his younger age education. Alan was, it seems, someone who was naturally bright, but he was also a huge fan of games like cricket and golf. And he developed a talent for light verse. That's a form of poetry that's meant to entertain, usually involving wordplay and humor. In 1899, his first light verse attempt came when he helped a girl he knew write such a piece to send to Ken. Soon, Ken and Alan were writing light verse both as a literal team and separately to send to each other. It was an exercise that would pay off for Alan in the long term. When it came time for Alan's next step in education, he ended up at Trinity College, Cambridge on a scholarship for mathematics. I know, not the thing you normally associate with someone famous for his writing, but despite studying math, Alan's mind continued to focus on light verse and writing. In fact, one thing that appealed to Alan about Trinity was the Granta, 
a school publication that had alumni ties to Punch, a popular humor magazine of which Alan was a major fan. When Alan attended the school, the Granta was still relatively new. It had been founded in 1889. According to the current official website, while it is a literary quarterly now, in Alan's time, it was a magazine started by students as a, quote, periodical of student politics, badinage, and literary enterprise, named after the river that runs through the town. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Alan began submitting to the Granta as soon as possible. Although everything he submitted didn't get published, he did have significant success. First, writing with his brother, under the initials AKM, for Alan Ken Milne, and then later on his own. All of this work paid off for Alan, and he took on the role of editor of the Granta in 1902. The following year, he graduated from Trinity College, Cambridge, with a degree in mathematics, but a desire to make a career out of writing. He was fortunate enough to have enough money to float himself for a bit to see if he could make it as a writer before looking for another form of employment. Punch, of course, was his primary objective, but it was a difficult one. Generally, writers can shop a piece around hoping it will find someplace somewhere. To Alan, though, things with the popular brand of humor embodied by Punch just didn't seem to fit anywhere else. When a piece was rejected there, it was difficult to feel hopeful of it finding another home. Still, he kept trying, but his goal of publication there wasn't realized until May of 1904 when the magazine printed his poem The New Game. And one publication does not a financially successful career make. His work continued, and he published elsewhere, including in the St. James Gazette. It's the stories that he wrote for the Gazette that were ultimately collected for his first book, which was published in 1905. It centered around stories about young characters called Amelia and Teddy and was called Lovers in London. I've put a link to where you can read it for free in the further reading, but here's the thing. Alan wouldn't want you to. In his autobiography, he recalled a review that said, the only readable part of the book is the title. Which, ouch. And he explained that he did his best to prevent it from being republished by buying the rights to it. When he occasionally saw it pop up in booksellers' catalogs in later years, he was always relieved to find that it was marked as very rare. Luckily, Lovers in London wouldn't be his only contribution to the literary world. His submissions for Punch started to get picked up more often. But by 1906, Alan decided maybe the way to break out and establish himself was to write a novel he planned to call Philip's Wife. So, he told his connections at Punch that he was going to take a break from submitting to turn his attention to his new venture. And in something that seemed like it comes from a movie, Punch wrote back asking him not to do that. The next thing you know, he's meeting with Owen Seaman, who is about to be the new editor of Punch, and Owen is asking him to become Punch's new assistant editor. He would work a few days a week sorting out incoming contributions and also be expected to contribute weekly himself. Plus, his income would now be significantly more than the buy-the-piece way of life he had been living. It was the stuff of Alan's dreams, though he was under no illusion that he was a remarkable person. He considered it a case of being not wholly the wrong person, in the right spot, at the right moment. If you think he said anything other than yes, you are sorely mistaken, and Philip's wife would never get written. The following few years saw him become an increasingly recognizable fixture at Punch. 
He often drew from reality as he created humorous takes on the world, including a series of pieces chronicling a middle-class family called the Rabbits that became very well-known. Life continued on, and soon three big things happened for him. One is how he was invited to something at Punch called The Table. The table was, well, just that. It was a table, but a special one. It was where, since at least the 1850s, the staff meeting took place over a dinner and for sure, plenty of drinks. It was also where, when invited, one might leave their mark. Editors and proprietors took part in a tradition of carving their initials in the table. And so it was that Allen added his AAM to the lot. Another landmark moment that occurred was the publication of The Day's Play, a collection of his punch pieces, and the one that he considered to be his first book, despite the existence of lovers in London. The third special event is that Allen met his future wife. In December of 1910, he accompanied Owen Seaman, the aforementioned editor of Punch, to the 21st birthday dance given for his goddaughter. That goddaughter was one Dorothy de Selincourt, who always and forever preferred to be called Daphne or Daph. Daphne had been born in November of 1889 and was the daughter of a mantle manufacturer. She had multiple brothers, was partly educated in France, and Alan immediately took to her. The pair began to spend time together. According to him, for example, she would call him when she needed someone to take her to a dance, and he would call her for help with shopping. Ultimately, the two were very different people. Alan was incredibly fair in his coloring with pointy features and eyes so blue that blue was his lifelong nickname, while pictures of Daphne show her to be a dark-haired with striking eyes and rounder features. Their differences were not just superficial, of course, because those mean nothing. Alan was rather quiet and shy, politically opinionated, but we'll see more on that next time, and gifted with an intelligence for math and writing, while Daphne was very much concerned with appearances, loved designing and redesigning, and was somewhat notorious for refusing to engage with any topics that might be distressing. However, the two got along extremely well with Alan eventually writing that she laughed at his jokes and had the most perfect sense of humor in the world. Later, their son would recall that his parents' very different interests led them to spend time apart, but that they would then meet up and tell each other about it, sharing happy laughter if the occasion called for it. Anyway, as you've no doubt guessed, the pair got engaged. Alan proposed at 11 a.m. during a snowstorm on a holiday in Switzerland and they were married in June 1913 and took up residence in Chelsea. They lived contentedly together, with him working at Punch and her establishing their household, and might have continued that way for some time were it not for the outbreak of World War I. It is important to note here that, generally speaking, Alan was always a pacifist in the sense that he was anti-war. However, when a war broke out, especially so big a one as World War I, which Allen believed was going to be the war that ended war for the future. He, like many others, felt the need to do something to help. This, though, didn't mean he wanted to pick up a gun. Yet still, he did want to contribute. In February of 1915, Allen got a commission into the Warwickshire Regiment and took a temporary leave from his editorial duties at Punch. By August, he was sent to the south coast of England, for a course at the Southern Command Signaling School. He did well there, learning how to do everything from laying telephone lines to using Morse code disks, and was kept on as an instructor once he'd completed his own studies. 
During this period, he was lucky enough that Daphne was able to come with him. She befriended the wife of one of the colonels, and with her decided that they should come up with entertainment for the troops, perhaps a play that Daphne could act in with the colonel's children. Who was better to write it than signaling Officer Milne? No one, certainly. Following that, Allen wrote a lengthy fairy tale that would eventually be published as Once on a Time, though he would later admit that he agreed with those who said they were uncertain if he wrote it for children or adults. The project was one that Alan thoroughly enjoyed because it meant time where he could relax after a long day, and Daphne, who he always credits as being his collaborator, would help by taking the story down from his dictation. It was their moment of peace amidst the chaos and fears of war. But this couldn't last forever, and Alan would not go through all of World War I without making it into the combat zone. In July of 1916, he was sent to France, where he spent time at the Somme and other places, and saw horrors that would make him even more vehemently anti-war than he had been before. He found himself upset that if he died, there would not be much left for Daphne, who'd given him a little toy dog to carry for protection. And he was there to aid with communication in the time when soldiers were dying at alarming numbers daily. At one point, according to Thwaite, sickness was rampant, causing a need to vaccinate the troops against typhoid. The situation was so dire that, quote, if there were any objectors, Milne's commanding officer had them remanded for medical examination on the grounds of insanity, end quote. Eventually, illness was what would end Allen's time in Europe. In November of 1916, he felt hot and then slept for ages and developed a fever of 103. The next day, it was 105. In less than two weeks, Alan was back in England, in hospital, and reunited with his understandably distressed wife. His trench fever eventually recovered enough that he was able to leave the hospital and return to his former job working as an instructor of signaling officers. During that time, he relapsed with illness and returned to the hospital, only to be released and continue working in the war office. Being back in England meant a return to personal writing as well. It was during this time that Allen's play Wurzel Flummery was produced along two one-acts by J.M. Barry in London. If you think that's a weird name for a play, you would be correct, but that's sort of the point. It explored the question, would people take on a name as absurd as Wurzel Flummery if they could receive a large amount of money for doing so? The reception was warm enough that he believed that he could really make it as a playwright, and so he continued to write plays. Seeing, for example, another called Belinda, produced in the spring of 1918, and shortly after the war's end that November, his Make Believe, a collection of three family-friendly, short, interconnected plays, was also produced for the stage. The war, though, had changed Alan's professional life forever. There was no going back to his work at Punch. Although he would write that he felt he should go back to Punch, at least for a bit while he was working on his playwriting career, Punch ultimately didn't want him to come back. They'd gotten along well with his replacement, and, well, according to Alan, they weren't thrilled by the idea that he'd spent the war choosing to write for the stage, and not the pages of Punch. Though there would be the odd occasion where Alan wrote for them again in the future, the strong relationship he'd had with his dream publication was gone for good. It was the end of an era, one that brought Daphne to tears and caused Alan to reassure her that leaving Punch would not be the end of his career. And indeed, he was right. His career was far from over. 
but it was changing, as was the makeup of his family. In early 1920, Allen had his first real London stage success with a play called Mr. Pym Passes By. It's a comedy where the appearance of an elderly man sends a couple into chaos. Then, Allen and Daphne moved to a new home to prepare for something even bigger than a successful play. The birth of their first and only child. On August 21, 1920, Christopher Robin Milne was born at his parents' home, as Allen put it, compared to his own writing, quote, In August of that year, my collaborator produced a more personal work, end quote. It was a joyous arrival, of course, made more joyous by the fact that they had tried to have a child for some years with no success, and finally their dreams of parenthood were realized. There was no way they could know at the time that the name Christopher Robin would become so famous, but looking at where it came from is fun. According to Alan, they had initially thought they would call their child Rosemary, or perhaps Billy, though William was out of the question. So they considered other names, and one came up with Christopher, and the other Robin, and they just put the two together, content with the flow of the name Christopher Robin Milne. As an adult, Christopher would write that he had an embarrassment of names. So many names had been associated with him. Despite being named Christopher Robin, that name was rarely used by anyone, and after the success of the Pooh books, it was intentionally scrubbed from the regular rotation. Billy was part of his barn of names in the early days, and eventually becoming Billy Moon, when a young Christopher came out with Moon in his attempt to say Milne. This combination eventually gave way to just Moon, which Christopher said was what his father always called him, with many others, except, he noted, his mother, also taking up the name. It would eventually be replaced in terms of frequency of use by simply Christopher. To the man himself, though, Christopher was the name that he said was the only one that felt truly like it was his. As such, and because I am a Christine who likes Christine above other nicknames, aside from where it's necessary, you will only hear me call him Christopher. Although there is no question that his parents loved him, Christopher's early years, indeed up until the time he went away to school, were dominated by his attachment to his nanny, whom he appropriately called Nanny, but whose real name was Olive Rand. Olive dedicated her life to the family, staying with them until Christopher eventually went off to boarding school, after which she finally resumed her personal life and got married. In general, the 1920s was a great decade for the Milnes. Allen had approximately 16 productions of his plays occur, including The Dover Road, about how spending too much time together can ruin adoration, the Truth About Blades, about a poet who might have been a plagiarist, and the mystery called The Fourth Wall or The Perfect Alibi, depending on what country you're in. Speaking of mysteries, he also published one, The Red House Mystery, which was a rousing success. It is also the time when Alan became a children's writer. When Christopher was about three, Alan took a break from writing a play and put together a little poem called Vespers, which begins... Little boy kneels at the foot of the bed, droops on the little hands, little gold head. Hush, hush, whisper who dares. Christopher Robin is saying his prayers. He gave it to Daphne as a present and told her that if she chose to try and get it published, she could keep however much she was paid for it. Well, she sold it to the American publication Vanity Fair and got herself $50. Not long after, 
the opportunity to write about children came up again. Known children's author Rose Fileman was putting together a magazine and wondered if Alan would like to contribute. Although he initially declined, he relented and provided her with The Dormouse and the Doctor. Soon it seemed everyone thought he should write children's verses. He was on a rainy holiday in Wales when proofs for the Dormouse poem arrived, and with them notes from the illustrator and editor that said he should really do a whole book of poems like this one. Alan reasoned, quote, So there I was with an exercise book and a pencil, and a fixed determination not to leave the heavenly solitude of that summer house until it stopped raining. And there in London were two people telling me what to write, and there, on the other side of the lawn, was a child with whom I had lived for three years. And here, within me, were unforgettable memories of my own childhood. What was I writing? A children's book of verses, obviously. (laughs) The project that began in that home in Wales was published in 1924 as the collection When We Were Very Young, which you may remember from my episode back in January, was illustrated by E.H. Shepard and contains the poem Teddy Bear, where we meet the bear who became known as Winnie the Pooh under his original name, Mr. Edward Bear. It also included Vespers, the royalties for which Alan tells us went to Daphne, though it would long bother Alan that the poem was misunderstood. In its verses, the child Christopher Robin is playing, and this had many readers cooing over the sweet purity of a child at prayer. However, for Alan, who believed that God was a creation of man and not the reverse, The point of the poem was that a child so small doesn't actually understand prayer and is essentially doing what they are told to do while thinking of other things instead of being in a true moment of communion with a higher power. Interpretation bothers aside, Alan enjoyed immense success with When We Were Very Young. Around this same time, the family finally found their ideal country home, Cotchford Farm in Sussex. Soon, they were taking trips there for holidays and weekends. One thing that all three members of the family shared was an enjoyment of this home. And it was this spot that inspired so much of the world of Winnie the Pooh. And although Pooh had been a beloved plushie of Christopher's since Christopher received him as a gift for his first birthday, the fictionalized versions of Boy and Bear had not yet really entered the public consciousness. But they would, very soon. You see, when we were very young, enjoyed so much success that it led to three other children's books in pretty quick succession, Winnie the Pooh, Now We Are Six, and The House at Pooh Corner, which were at the center of my January episode. If you missed it, I suggest checking our website or wherever you listen to podcasts because that episode, which is simply called Winnie the Pooh, has all the details about the life of Pooh that I don't have the space to repeat here. Anyway, each book was a continued experience of gigantic success. People on both sides of the Atlantic were absolutely besotted with Milne's clever, beautiful words and Shepard's absolutely perfect pictures. Side note, in the Pooh episode, I talked about how Shepard drew from life. That is, he based his work on viewing Christopher's plush Pooh and friends. But what I somehow managed to leave out was that when it came to Pooh himself, Shepard also incorporated into his look inspiration from his own son's more portly teddy bear, Growler which is why when you look at the real Pooh plush, he is not as closely linked in terms of visuals as other plushies like Eeyore and Kanga are to their book counterparts. Anyway, Pooh's popularity led to interest in the Milnes, like the real plushies, the real boy, 
the real author, with things like fan mail and requests for autographs and interviews arriving regularly. By 1928, when The House at Pooh Corner was released, Allen was more than ready to put this part of his writing world behind him. He'd achieved success in the children's field, wanted to quit while he was doing well, and also didn't want to continually force Christopher to deal with name recognition fame. After all, he also had more plays to write, and maybe some more novels. Just as Allen's time at Punch had come to an end, so too, he felt, had his foray into children's writing. But that brings us to a major question. What does one do after Pooh? I'm going to answer that question and many more, like how did World War II impact the family, and what happened to Christopher when he grew up, in our next episode, dropping on September 24th. I hope you'll return to hear it, because, quite frankly, one of the reasons I've made this into two episodes instead of one is because I'm excited to talk about Christopher in depth, since he rarely gets enough attention, in my opinion. I think you'll find him as interesting as I do, so please do join me again next time. Until then, check out footnotinghistory.com for those further reading suggestions, and hang out with us on social media through at History Footnote on Twitter and Footnoting History on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. And always remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.